Psalm 27. Of David, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not. O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Here ends the reading of God's word. Praise the Lord, all the nations, extol him, all the peoples, for great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, and welcome to Pacific Hope, if you are visiting with us. We're all glad to have you with us this morning, and you are here on a day in which we will begin a verse-by-verse study of Revelation chapter 7, as we work our way through the book of Revelation. So if you would, please open your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 7. The Word of God reads, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who'd been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 
12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulon, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in this temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let us pray. Holy Father, we come to you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and we ask now for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to enable and empower me to communicate the deep, divine, glorious truth that is before us. Lord, give us minds to understand. Help us to interpret scripture with scripture. Help us to see it for what it is. That we may grow thereby. That we may trust in the fact that as God's people in Christ Jesus, we are forever sealed, covered by grace because of the blood of the Lamb. That we will face tribulation that we are guaranteed to face trouble, that we are guaranteed to be faced with temptation. But through it all, you promise to deliver us. Whatever we may face on this earth, our destinies are sealed because of the blood of the Lamb. Bless your people today, Lord, with greater understanding, I pray. And Lord, I ask that those that may be here that aren't converted, who simply know the truth, of the gospel, but are not recipients of the grace of the gospel. May they be converted today, I pray. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. If you're a true Christian, this chapter of Revelation has you in view. You are part of what's depicted here for us this morning, beloved. Chapter 7 is one of the principal chapters in all of the book of Revelation. Reminding us that because of the grace of God, that believers forever belong 
to God. Now, last time we looked at chapter 6 of the Revelation. And chapter 6 contains the opening of the seals that contain the secret decrees of Almighty God where upon the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was granted the right to take that scroll from the right hand of the Father and slid open those seals which contain the purposes of God in salvation and judgment. And he commences to open each of the seven seals. Now, last time, four horsemen were dispatched by way of the command of the Lord Jesus Christ to unleash the preliminary judgment of Jesus Christ upon the earth, upon unbelieving people. The unbelieving world, by way of war, that was the first horseman. Bloodshed, that was the second horseman. Famine and pestilence, all of which will occur, beloved, before the fir- between the first and the second comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, i.e. the four horsemen of the last days. Ordered to go out as Christ ascended in glory. Now with the opening of the fifth seal, we were taken back to the throne room. The four seals were unleashed upon the earth. The camera pulls back and it takes us back into the throne room of heaven where we see the fifth seal opened and that represents the martyrdom of Christians. The saints underneath the altar cried out, how long, O sovereign Lord, before you will judge and avenge our blood? And the answer given to them was, not until the number of your fellow servants and brothers are complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Chapter 6, verse 11. Now, there will be martyrs, and there have been martyrs, and there will continue to be martyrs, those killed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the testimony of Almighty God between the first and the second comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the sixth seal was opened, where all of the cosmic events that depict the final and second and final coming of the Lord Jesus Christ are unleashed where every category of unbeliever cries out for the mountains to fall on them. They want to be crushed. And again, that is imagery depicting the terror of the day of the Lord that unbelievers will want to face anything but the final judgment of the Lamb of God. For the great day of the wrath of God has come and the question we were left with in chapter 6 is, who can stand? Who can stand against this kind of judgment? This is final judgment. Now the four horsemen, the judgment that's released there is providential judgment. We see wars. Jesus said there will be wars. There will be rumors of wars. But the end is not yet. There will be pestilence. There will be famine. Those things were promised by the Lord himself that they would come and they would go before he returns. That question, who can possibly stand, beloved, is answered for us in chapter 7. Now, Revelation chapter 7 is a parenthesis. It is a pause that takes place, depicting the redeemed, the redeemed people of God that emerge, beloved, triumphantly. By the grace of God, in Christ Jesus alone, 
even though they suffered great tribulation. Trouble between the first and second comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, who's the recipient of this vision, beloved? It's John the Apostle, who is suffering the same tribulation. Chapter 1, he says, I, John, am your brother and partner in the kingdom and in the tribulation. So we mustn't forget the pressure that the Apostle John is under as he writes this letter. And again, this is a literal letter given to the churches in Asia Minor. It was written to them. A persecuted minority. He's not writing here from an academic ivory tower. He's not writing from being on vacation. He is on a penal colony on the island of Patmos. Beloved, he's in prison. And the word he uses for tribulation in chapter 1, verse 9, means literally to press together. It is like a gathering of the grapes and a crushing of those grapes. That's the pressure John feels as he writes this letter. He's under emotional and physical pressure. He's separated from the beloved church in Ephesus. He's deprived of the simple necessities of life here, all because of the name of Jesus Christ. Every day he's under the threat of death. And in the midst of that trouble, trial, and tribulation, beloved, he's taken up into heaven and he's given this vision, the book of Revelation, the apocalypse. So the greatest concern of all here for John is to tell us what the future is. This is history. This is his story. The Lord Jesus Christ, he's in control. Regardless of the circumstances that any Christian will face, they're secure, and that's the message. He's received revelation that seems as though the world is, is moving and going out of control. But he gives this promise so any Christian living at any time between the first and second comings of Christ can avoid living lives of hopeless despondency. A trap that many Christians fall into. And that's precisely why the book of Revelation is so important for our understanding. It speaks of human history telling us, beloved, what really is going on behind the scenes. You look at the news and you read the newspaper and you go, why, Lord, why? This is why. This is judgment, the providential judgment of God that he's released upon an unbelieving world. Nevertheless, if you're in Christ, you are secure in the midst of it all. So this picture here of the revelation is not given to us from Hollywood's viewpoint, beloved. This is not the opinion of some existential philosopher. Like, you know, uh, the likes of Albert Camus or Jean-Paul Sartre, who at the beginning of his philosophy course warned his students, the logical extension of this course is suicide. And would they please not do it? And if you're into existentialism, that's the only hope you have. This is a vision of world affairs given from God and his point of view. The reality of what's happening in the form, beloved, of apocalyptic writing, which literally means the unveiling. He's showing us here what is going on by way of pictures, this is like a kaleidoscope, as I've said numerous times. 
all going on behind the scenes of history that John has been granted to see and then communicate to the church of Asia Minor. And for us to rightly interpret to this very day. So he's informing John what to expect and to embrace two realities. And these are the same two realities, beloved, that we must face as believers. Number one, that in Christ you are going to win. Did you get that? In Christ, the conquering hero, the victor, you are going to win. Number two, life now will be hard. Because as a Christian, we exist as his kingdom. Revelation 1 and chapter 5, we exist as his kingdom while at the same time we suffer the tribulation. So if we fail to see the picture within Revelation, we will most likely fail to understand the message of the Revelation. There's all kinds of crazy interpretations today. I actually used to adhere to a rather wacky interpretation of this book until I started to study the book. Unfortunately, as a new believer, it was the first book I studied. That's a problem. Because if you do not understand the whole Bible, the Old Testament in particular, you cannot understand the Revelation. You'll start drawing crazy pictures from the newspaper, as I did myself. I admit it. Who then can possibly stand in the great and final day of God's wrath, beloved? Only God's people. So here then in chapter 7, we see two visions of the same people. Again, in chapter 7 of the Revelation, we see the same vision of or two visions of the same people. In verses 1 through 8, we, John sees God's people made secure on earth. Whereas, in verses 9 to 17, John sees the same group of God's people having conquered in heaven. Are you with me, beloved? So together, these two visions make up the same people. And it answers the question, who can stand? So this ensures God's true people that those who are Christian because of the grace of God in Christ will forever, beloved, belong to God, regardless of what happens, regardless of what you will face. John 10, 27, Jesus said this, my sheep, what do they do, beloved? They hear my voice, I know them, and because I know them first, they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me, he's greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father were one. One. That, beloved, is precisely what is being portrayed in Revelation chapter 7. The words of Jesus Christ in John 10 are what is being portrayed for us in Revelation chapter 7. Now, it's very important to note, this chapter, chapter 7 of the Revelation, lies between the opening of the sixth and the seventh seal, and it serves as what's known as a literary interlude, like a brief performance that occurs between two major acts of a play. 
It's like a guitar solo between two major parts of a song. It's like an intermission filling the time between two major events. It's a parenthesis which helps explain the vision that we looked at last week in chapter 6 only in more detail. That's all this is. And chapter 7, by the way, brings us to the end of section 2 of the Revelation. Remember I told you at the forefront of our studies that Revelation is made up of seven pictures of the same story from seven different points of view, seven different perspectives. We've already seen the second coming of Christ last week. We're going to go on and see the second coming of Christ again through the seven trumpets. And then we'll see it again and again and again. It's called recapitulation. Now, this kind of thing, this interlude, occurs again between the sixth and seventh trumpet judgments, serving the purpose, beloved, to reassure the Asia Minor Christians, the original recipients of this letters, and all believers for that matter, that the violent judgments of God upon the unbelieving world can in no way separate his redeemed people from his redemptive protection. Therefore, the title of the message is The Protection of Election. Secure. In other words, in the midst of all of this upheaval, devoted to judgment along with martyred saints who will die for the faith until he returns, we have a vision here that God has provided to encourage and strengthen God's people. That's what this is. Now, I want you to notice in the outline, we're, we're going to begin to break this down. We're going to look at point number one that is revealed for us, and that is the postponement of the four winds. Verse one. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. That is not literal wind that God is having held back here. Now, notice the words after this. Now, on the surface, you might read this, and it may seem at first to imply that the events of chapter 7 belong chronologically after chapter 6, but that is not the case. That's not what's being conveyed here. Whenever we read in the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, after this, it's not referring to what follows in linear form. What John is simply saying is, after I received this vision, then I was granted this vision. So after this, the vision of chapter 6, this is what was revealed to him next. I saw another vision. And what he sees is a restraint, a restraint of wind. These are winds of judgment. Now, remember the four horsemen of chapter 6? They were ordered out into all the earth to inflict judgment upon the earth. Well, here in chapter 7, those four horsemen are referred to as four winds that are being limited by four angels. This is simply another view, beloved, of the same occurrence as chapter 6. What's very unique about apocalyptic literature is that metaphorical imagery is often used interchangeably. Where various images are used to speak of the very same event. Events, by the way, which are not necessarily in chronological order. So apocalyptic is not historical narrative. These are pictures. 
So these four horsemen, also identified as four winds of heaven, is imagery that's borrowed from Zechariah chapter 6, which reads, verse 5, And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven. After presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth, the chariots with the black horse goes towards the north country, the white one goes after them, the dappled ones go toward the south country where the strong horses come out. They were impatient to go and patrol the earth and he said, go patrol the earth. So the angel interprets the chariots as four winds stressing a worldwide effect, a worldwide effect range. God's four winds of judgment. So here then, back in Revelation, four angels are holding back here the four horsemen, which are the four winds of God's judgment for God's great purpose, which is stated for us in verse 2. Why are they being held back? Well, for the sealing of God's people. Notice verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who'd been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So this great angel holds back the four other angels. He says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. Now this, if we're going to look at this in a chronological sense, beloved, this would take us back to before chapter 6, before the seals were even opened. As the first four seals were opened, we witnessed the judgments of God unleashed upon the world in a providential manner, or in other words, in a limited sort of way. And we'll see this depicted again through the Revelation where a a quarter of the earth is affected or a third of the earth is affected. And when Christ returns in glory, all of the earth is defected. Decreated, if you will. Greatly affected in final judgment. But before these judgments could be released by way of the four horsemen, the servants of God had to be sealed with a seal upon what? Their forehead. Now, what this tells us once again is that this book is not chronological. This is not a chronological record. It's as though God is just simply saying, okay, hold up, I want to show you what already took place. It's not as though he forgot, wait a minute, hold on, hold those horses back, let me seal my people. This is like a murder mystery. For the last few years, my wife and I had watched this show, it was called Monk. It's obsessive, compulsive... uh, Detective. He would figure out murders. So my wife and I would always try to watch for the clues in the beginning of the show. You know, the camera might do a close-up on a clock or some crazy thing. And as the mystery unfolds throughout the detective, he gets it. And at the end, when he figures it out, he said this. This is what happened. And then the color, color TV, goes to black and white. And he begins to unfold what took place before the murder, who did it, what they were um, working out in their evil, and then end of story, and he's always right. The Lord says, this is what happened. 
And we're taken back before chapter 6 now, given a picture, a vision of God ordering, the, ordering these angels to hold back the four winds, to hold back the four horsemen, because not until his servants are sealed will that judgment be unleashed. Chapter 6, the first five seals had unleashed evil, including the martyrdom of the saints. The sixth seal depicted the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the seventh seal, which is the seven trumpets, is dramatically delayed. Here now we have an interlude. So that the hearers of this letter, the original recipients of this epistle, a literal epistle written to the Asia Minor persecuted church might read this, hear this rather as it's being read, knowing that they are his forever and protected from the calamities of chapter six. Oh, they may die and they were already dying, but they're sealed and they're with the Lord. So what's the seal? Next point. The seal of Almighty God, beloved, calls to mind the image of a signet ring that a king would wear to validate documents. He would take a document, scroll, put wax on the seal, and he would impress his signet ring, which marked him as being the owner, the authority, and the royalty of that document. You're sealed, owned protected by the king of kings, the royal one. So it doesn't matter what you face here. Now look with me, if you will, at chapter 14. Chapter 14 of the Revelation. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their forehead. So here's the name of the lamb, here's the name of the father as they stand on Mount Zion, the city of God. Now, first of all, beloved, as we see the lamb, as we see the father, as we see the, the mount of God or the city of God written on their forehead, we have to understand that this is symbolic terminology, which we'll see in a moment. 144,000 is symbolic. So the seal is the name of the Lamb, the seal is the name of the Father, and the seal is the New Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven. How do we know that? Because back in chapter 3, if you hold your finger here, the promise that was given to the church of Philadelphia and those that were suffering persecution, the promise that was given to those who would conquer to the end. In other words, revealing that they were truly believers because only true believers conquer to the end. Amen? The one who conquers, verse 12, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name, says the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb. So this multitude portrays the victors on whom Christ has promised to write his name. Now, when we get to chapter 13, don't go there now, we're going to read of a satanic counterfeit of this name, where it reads in Revelation 13, 16, it causes all, both 
small and great, rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. Now, this is an invisible mark, beloved. Just like the seal of Almighty God is invisible. There's no need to interpret it as some literal mark. I used to interpret it as a microchip, because that's what I was taught, until I really started to study the scriptures. (laughs) I'm embarrassed to say that. (laughs) This mark in Revelation 13 is the antithesis of the seal of Almighty God, and we'll look at that in detail when we get there. Both the seal and the mark symbolize spiritual control of the heart, beloved. One's allegiance, one's affections, one's submission. You are either of the devil or you are of Christ. There's no in-between. There is nobody, beloved, who sits on the fence, undecided for Christ, just trying to make up my mind. No, you, you are decided. If you're undecided, you are of the devil. And we once that are now saved were of the devil, Ephesians 2. Now, the mark takes us back to um, the symbolism revealed for us back in Ezekiel 9. The Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. In other words, the people of God. And to the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike Your eye shall not spare, you shall show no pity, kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. And by the way, begin in my sanctuary where the false prophets are leading the people astray. Start there. Judgment begins with the leaders who were were leading the people astray. All the while, he is securing the true people of God. And you go on to read, there was one man standing. So this seal conveys the idea of protection, of authenticity, beloved, of ownership. A seal represents protection as property of another. You are not your own. You were bought at a great price. You have his name and his city on your forehead. Do you see it here? Not literally, but it's there. And we'll see what the seal is at the end of the message. So he's, he's, prom- he's promising safety for his own. Not from suffering in this age, beloved. I mean, we already see in seal number five of the scroll that the murder of God's people will continue until the last one to die, preordained by God himself, dies for the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's going to continue to happen until he returns. And when the last martyr is put to death, here he is, no last chance. There's no second chance, beloved. 2 Timothy 2. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those that are his. Doesn't that make you rejoice? So this seal then in no way, beloved, in no way promises a no pain, tribulation free life on this earth. Cut and dry. What we're saved from is final wrath. 
What does it matter how you die? You will die. Somehow, some way. You don't know how. You may be martyred. You may die of a heart attack this afternoon. You may get hit by a truck. You will die. If you're marked, you're saved from eternal wrath. If you die in the war, some war, any war, you're sealed. Those that aren't sealed immediately face eternal wrath, beloved. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, For God has not destined us for what? Wrath. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So regardless of the affliction we may face in this age, this seal promises us, beloved, that hell, sin, and suffering will not have the last word. You know what has the last word for those that are sealed? Grace. Grace alone. In Christ alone, by faith alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Amen? Amen. But nevertheless, since he suffered, having come as a man, Jesus Christ, we too will suffer. But oh, it's only temporal. Okay, notice now in this vision the hearing of the number sealed. And I heard the number of the sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin were sealed. Now, Some refer to these as a literal 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And again, to my shame, I used to refer to this as as 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams who would tour the earth and preach the gospel. But the question that came to mind one day was this, many years ago. Is that what is being communicated by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle John? And the answer is no, if we interpret Scripture with Scripture. Turn back again to chapter 14, if you will. I looked and behold, in the Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 140,000, 144,000, whose name is of the fathers on his forehead. And so on. So here, number one, beloved, this vision and these numbers, like most all other numbers in Revelation, are symbolic. You can, you know, there's many ways. People have come up with crazy scenarios, and I don't even want to get into that. You have 12, uh, um, You have 12 sons of Israel, you have 12 apostles. 12 times 12 is 144,000. Times that by 10 squared, you come up with 144,000. 10 being this full number of, of, of completeness. All that aside, it is not that there will be a ceiling of 12,000 ethnic Jews from a literal 12 tribes because that is problematic on many fronts. And we're going to look at some of the problems in a moment. I mean, there's no Jew today that could possibly trace back their lineage to any tribe. All those documents were destroyed in 70 AD. I had a friend, he's in the music industry. He's Jewish. 
and uh, spent some time with him. Loved this guy. He's a brother in Christ. He said, yeah, my lineage goes back to the tribe of Levi. <laughs> I'm like, how on earth do you even know that? He goes, I just believe that. He, how can he know? Just a funny story. Now, there's four things to consider, beloved, as we, looked at, as we look at these sealed saints, okay? Number one, this list in Revelation 7 does not match any list of the tribes of Israel anywhere in the Old Testament. For instance, if this were a list of the sons of Jacob, who was, who was renamed what? Israel. Manasseh was not a son of Jacob. He was a grandson. Dan is left out of the list, who is a son of Jacob. Now, we also find in, this, in the list of these 12 tribes in the Old Testament as being those who um, inherit the land. Now, there's another problem here in this list. Um, this list can't be those who inherit the land because Levi's name is there. And he was the tribe of the priesthood who received what portion of the land? None. Their portion was God, Deuteronomy 10.9. Secondly, this promise is identical to the overcomer's promise back in chapter 3, verse 12, as we just looked at, is all who overcome, they will be given this seal. That was the promise. The name of the Lamb, the name of the Father, and the name of the city of God. So the promise that distinguished these 144,000 people, chapter 14, verse 1, is the same promise given to all who overcome, i.e., beloved, all true believers, Jew or Gentile, who persevere to the end. Third thing to consider. As we compare this same 144,000 mentioned here in chapter 14, Notice verse 3, they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures, before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000. When we go back to the vision of chapter 5, verse 9, those that are redeemed from the earth are who? A people from every tribe, every language, every people, Every nation. So it's not only these 12 tribes, but it's those from every tribe of the earth. That promise given to Abraham, that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Amen? Fourth thing to consider is to read chapter 14, verse 4. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They've been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. So now if we take this, beloved, in an absolute literalist approach, you'll have to understand these 144,000 as only redeemed males who've never been married. They're virgins. So question is this list to be interpreted as a physical kind of righteousness by way of virginity? Answer, no. Absolutely not. The Bible speaks nowhere in those terms as though remaining celibate, unmarried, produces one's purity. As a matter of fact, what does the Bible say about marriage? 
Hebrews 13, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. So we know then that these are to be interpreted as symbolic regarding spiritual purity, beloved, not physical purity. Again, Revelation is filled with symbolism and metaphors. Now I want you to notice the chart on the back of your handout. Now, notice that the sons of Jacob, Genesis 35, is listed on the left. And again, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, back in Genesis 32. This is kind of strange, so just, it didn't work out right too much. So just look, look at the one in your lap. The sons of Israel, as listed on the right in Revelation 7, notice there's some changes, aren't there? Judah, listed fourth, is elevated to first place in Revelation. Reuben seems as though he's demoted, and what do we know about Reuben? He committed incest with his father's concubine. If you notice uh, um, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, which are at the bottom of the list there on the left, those were sons of the concubines. Of Jacob. They're elevated. So the sons of the concubines, they're elevated above the sons of the wives, which is a picture of the, what a beautiful picture of the inclusion of Gentiles, outsiders, into the true Israel. Dan, he was guilty of idolatry in the northern kingdom, so he's not even listed there, and he's replaced by Manasseh. And then the others are listed as follows. So as we come to understand why these 12 tribes are listed as they are, and, and who it is that is included, and who is excluded, provides for us a beautiful picture of those who are ruled and saved by the lion of the tribe of Judah. Abraham, in the lion of the tribe of Judah. You, 2,000 years this side of the cross are in the lion of the tribe of Judah who was slain is a lamb. Get the picture? If you're not in the lamb, you're sealed with the mark of the beast. If you're in the lamb, you're sealed with the name of the father and the lamb and the city of almighty God. So we move now from what John hears, 144,000, and the number sealed to what he sees. Notice now the seeing of the number sealed, verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Where? From where? From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What does this vision remind you of? 
Do you remember in chapter 5, who's worthy to take the scroll? And one of the elders cries out, he who is the, of the line of the tribe of Judah. That's what John heard. The scripture says that when he turned and looked, he saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Here, John hears the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And after hearing it, he looks, and what does he see? A great multitude from every nation, all tribes of people's languages, doing what? Standing. Who can stand? Standing before the throne of the Lamb. Both are visions of two different perspectives, beloved. Jesus, who's the lion of the tribe of Judah, is the one who was slain as the lamb. True Israel, viewed from earth, sealed before the four horsemen were released in verses four through eight, are sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. When they're viewed from heaven, they are the same true Israel made up of a great multitude that no one can number from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Same people. So just as the lion and the lamb give us a complementary image of the one true Lord Jesus Christ, so too the 144,000 sons of Israel and the countless multitudes also provide a complementary image of the one true church, i.e. the one true Israel, whatever way you want to slice it. The true church is true Israel and true Israel is the church. The one true Israel are those who've embraced the one true Messiah from the tribe of Judah. So the one true church is the one true Israel in full bloom. Fully matured Israel is the church. Not two distinct people, not, not two separate peoples, a one people forever. A one people of God. This is the definitive community of God. This is a transnational, transracial, and translinguistic group of people. There is no hint of racism here whatsoever. Look around you. This is what the church looks like from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Oh, we're from all from America, but our ancestors come from all over the place, do they not? That's the church. This is God's international Israel. The church. You should rejoice about that. That there's not two groups of people, there's one. The 144,000 sealed. Notice now the security of the number of those that are sealed. Verse 11, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever again, amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes? From where have they come? Now the inquiry of this elder, of this host of heaven is not to gather information. He's not sitting here wondering. But this is a teaching method known as the question and answer technique here. And it's not the student, but the teacher that's asking the obvious question that calls for a very insightful reply. 
He wants John to acknowledge here that the lion of the tribe of Judah, beloved, indeed fulfilled the Old Testament promises of salvation. A one covenant people of God through and through who are in the seed of Abraham. So he wants John to see both the promise and the fulfillment here. Verse 14, how does John respond? Well, I said to him, ah, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So by questioning John, the elder points to the countless multitudes of those that are sealed. And then in verse 15, therefore, they're before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more. Neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So what's in view here is, beloved, their eternal position, their eternal protection, and their eternal perfection. That's what we see. Sealed by the lamb. This is another way of saying what Paul said at the end of Romans 8. Listen to this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, beloved? Shall tribulation? Because there will be tribulation. Distress, there will be distress. Persecution, there will be persecution. Or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in the name of In all these rather things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. End of story, amen. Not end of sermon yet. Amen. You are sealed, beloved, if you're in Christ. Sealed. Nothing can touch you. The moment you die, you don't go through some cold, dark cave of death. You don't face death. Only the body faces death. You'll be with the Lord. Those outside of Christ face physical death and the second death. Torment. No second chance. Now, they come out of the Great Tribulation. That's the next question. What is this Great Tribulation? There's only one reference in all of the New Testament, beloved, to the Great Tribulation outside of Revelation itself. And it occurs in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24, verse 41. 21, rather. Where Jesus said, For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Now, if you go back and read that this afternoon, you will see that the context in which Jesus makes this statement has to do with the doom of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And he goes on to say a few verses later, most assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things are fulfilled. And then he goes on to talk about the glorious second coming. Of that hour, no one knows. So he tells them what to watch for. And when you see these things coming, get out of Dodge because this is great tribulation that will be unleashed. And most assuredly, this generation will not pass until these things are fulfilled. And he said, heaven and earth 
will disappear. But of that hour, the coming of the Lord, no one knows. So read it in context when you read it. Now, both references, both the great tribulation referred to in Matthew, the great tribulation referred to in Revelation, pick up on Old Testament um, revelation that goes back to Daniel 12, Old Testament language, which reads, there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. What did Jesus say that would be? The destruction of Jerusalem. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, oh, they may die, they may be crushed, but they will be delivered. So deliverance here, beloved, is not from trouble or tribulation, but from the place that people go whose names are not written in the book of life, which is everlasting shame and contempt, which is hell. which is everlasting. So although some identify the great tribulation as a final period of persecution just, trial, just prior to the second coming, and again, that's what I used to believe. It was a seven-year period at the end. Scripture doesn't support that. Therefore, I no longer believe that. That was the first book I studied. Did I already tell you that? Don't do that. Study the Old Testament. Study the New Testament. Study the Old Testament again. Then study the Revelation. And then you won't come out to those crazy conclusions like I did. So we cannot overlook what Scripture defines. And that tribulation, it says, for Christians occurs throughout the church age. Therefore, the entire church age can be characterized, beloved, as the great What? Tribulation. Great in extent. 2 Timothy 3 says this, understand this, he said this, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. When did the last days begin? At the ascension of Jesus Christ, the apostle John said it is the last hour, not just the last day. Indeed, all who desire to live godly, a godly life in Christ Jesus, they will be persecuted. It's a guarantee. Revelation 7.14 then provides great comfort to those first century Christians, beloved, as well as all Christians thereafter who suffer persecution. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones comments on this. Quote, the people to whom John wrote were going through terrible things. And do you think that John simply wrote to tell them of something that might happen after 2,000 years had passed? How would that help them? It would almost be to mock them. John was writing to tell them what was already happening. But he told them, here it is, your Lord is there and he is in control of history, end quote. Why? Because it's all his story. So tribulation, by and large, is part of history. John began his letter by identifying himself as a fellow soldier in the tribulation. Peter, he warns that it is the church that's called to expect again and again in 1 Peter chapter 4, suffering. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. What's our hope? Is it to get saved? No, what's the hope of salvation for the believer? It's not to get saved, you're already saved. The hope is glory. Glory. 
That's what the helmet of salvation represents. The hope of salvation, which is the finish line, which is glory. To be glad when his glory is revealed. 2 Thessalonians 1. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Listen to this. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who will afflict you. What did the saints cry out under the altar? How long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood? How long are you going to put up with this, Lord? They're in his presence. They're not complaining. They want the holiness of God and the righteousness of God to be finalized. That's their cry. So what John seems to depict here for us is the story of the church emerging throughout history from one tribulation to another. It's always been, it always will be until he comes in glory. Could that tribulation be intensified tomorrow or next week or next year? Sure. If he comes back to this afternoon, it's already been intensified, hasn't it? There's been more martyrs for the faith in the last 200 years than the first 1,800 years since Christ is left combined. I call that an increase in tribulation. As I said last week, Go to Asia or go where people are dying for the faith and tell them that they won't be going through the tribulation. See what they say. So the saints seen here are not those at the very end of the age, beloved. These are God's people in Christ who've passed through tribulation between the first and second comings of Christ. That's the vision that John has been given. All of God's people in glory. So these symbols then are describing this dynamic that is true to those of us that are in Christ. For how long? Forever. This is God's seal. And this seal, beloved, is much more than an emblem pressed into wax. This is his very presence promised to his people. Regardless of what you will face, beloved, because you're sealed, he is always with you. Why? Ephesians 1. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, at that moment, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Until we acquire possession of it, you see, possession of it is standing. Who can stand? 144,000, that's you because you're sealed with the Spirit. To the praise of his glory, Ephesians 4.30, you were sealed for the day of redemption. You are the 144,000, beloved, those of you in Christ. Sealed as a guarantee to receive everything that's been promised to us as co-heirs of Christ. That's the promise. Safe, secure, kept by the power of God in Christ. So John sees a vision that regardless of what God's people might face on this earth, including martyrdom, the fifth seal, we are guaranteed the protection of election. You see it? Do you see it, beloved, this morning? I pray that you see it. I've prayed that you will see it, and I will continue to pray that you will see it. So the picture of the four winds being held back are simply another image of the restraint of these four horsemen that were held up to show us that God has sealed his people before he ever releases judgment. That's what it is to be be delivered up from tribulation. Though you may die in it, 
you go home. And you'd never want to come back. When we sing songs about heaven, I think a lot of times we're so stuck down here that we're not really excited about going. But because you're sealed, you're going to go whether you like it or not. (laughs) You want to study heaven. You want to study the lamb on the throne because you're washed in the blood of the lamb. So the great tribulation does not necessarily mean that it's one specific period of time that's being described here. It's simply describing the entire church age. So temptation, beloved, and and tribulation is inevitable for the Christian. And I close with a quote from Samuel Rutherford. I told the first service that I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, so I had to read this three times to, to really get it. So I trust you'll get it in one shot. (laughs) Quote, I find it most true that the greatest temptation out of hell is to live without temptations. If my water should stand, they would rot. What is more stinky than stagnant water, beloved? Faith is the better of the free air and of the sharp winter storm in its face. And unless, beloved, you have been in 50 degree below zero weather with a sharp wind at your face, you will not be able to understand this. It stings. It bites. My brother from Minnesota shaking his head. Amen, brother. (laughs) Grace, Rutherford continues, withers without adversity. The devil, you see, is but God's master fencer with the sword. He's his master fencer, what? To teach us to handle our weapons, end quote. So may we live, beloved, with a hope that is understood as forever firm and fixed in the Lamb of God who's on the throne, producing joy within us. And as it produces joy in us, it will indeed produce a certain curiosity in those around us who do not share the hope. And they'll ask this, how do you get through these things? How is it that you have this sense of joy and happiness in the midst of all of this? And therefore, you're able to give a reason for the hope that lies within you with gentleness and respect. So trials will come. As he hones his people, tribulation will come. that hope of eternal security granted by the lion who was slain as a lamb. He rules sovereign, beloved, over all things, over governments, over rulers, over disasters, over turmoil, over trials, over martyrdom of his people. He rules. He's ordained it all. And he will return when you least expect. And they'll cry out, who can stand? in the day of the Lord, those that are sealed. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the seal because of the finished work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for calling us. We thank you for predestining us to salvation and then sealing us that no matter what calamity we may face in life, whatever tribulation we may go through, we know that we are sealed and are simply waiting to stand in your presence. 
represented by the 144,000 who are the only ones that can sing a new song. Bless your people today, Lord, I pray. Lift them up out of their troubles. Lift them up out of their trials, out of their pain, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, physically, to be reminded of who is on the throne. This is your story being unleashed for your glory in our good, the good of your people. For anyone here this morning, Lord, who, who, who hears this and it's foreign to them, meaning the gospel, I pray that you would enlighten them, that you would radically transform their heart, they would see themselves as the sinner that they are, that they are at war with you, you are at war with them, they must repent of their sin, they must call upon you for mercy, and that you would this day regenerate their heart. Take out the heart of stone, replace it with a heart of flesh, that they may abide in you forever. Transform them today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.